Topping Talks. Hundred and five hours a week can't be beat. Welcome to Topping Talks. Topping Talks is a Topping Tribune production, and today's episode is probably sponsored by Topping Technologies and ExpressVPN. Topping Talks is also on Spotify, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, and Stitcher. Topping Technologies is an IT value-added reseller and services company with a special proficiency in security. Heck, I see their founder at least twice a day. Have to say, quite handsome and brilliant. If you're a business in Texas, I can use your hand. You can reach us at sales at toppingtechnologies.com. Also, are you part of the 3.6% of Americans who still care about their privacy? If you are, then perfect ExpressVPN can assist. Even though 96% of stats are made up on the spot, ExpressVPN does give a 100% guarantee via their 30-day back money guarantee. Now, without further ado, today I'm proud to say I'm interviewing Lex Green, who is the IT Director for the Libertarian Party of Texas. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. This is fun. Absolutely. So I know kind of winding back the clock a couple of years, how do you first get into IT or what first got you hooked onto the IT bug, so to say? Oh, well, do you want to go way back? To oh, yeah. The beginning? <laughs> origin. Well, because uh, I'm old enough to remember the whole evolution from uh, from the early days when everything was relays and, and even before that. I got in, involved first in uh, – in high school because I was in a rock band and that got me in, interested in the electronics and instrumentation. We had to solder our own cords and oh, make really? sure our amps worked and, you know, try to fix our guitars and so on. That got me started. And, uh, then as, as time went on, uh, my brother went into electrical engineering in, uh, U of I and, he would tell me all the things he was learning, and um, then I went into an apprenticeship for to be an electrician at the Eureka Company, and, and I would tell him about all the neat things I saw in the factory, and we'd compare notes, and everything kind of evolved from there. Uh, like I say, starting with, with simple uh, wires carrying signals to relay banks in machines and process controls, all the way up to, uh, you know, the computers that control stuff today. And so I've, I've watched the evolution for quite a few years. That's awesome. So was that the Eureka Vacuum Company? Yeah, that's where I, uh, I started in 1977, six or seven, somewhere around there, uh, as an apprentice electrician. And um, uh, at that time, they were an old company, so they had a lot of old machinery. Uh, oh, yeah. Machinery had uh, uh, either relay logic, which means banks of relays would turn on valves and motors and so on and read the switches uh, to understand where the, the process was that it was controlling. Or else we had tube electronics that controlled things that were more analog in nature. So, oh, really? for example, if you have... A, uh, an oven and you want to check the temperature, you need a, a feedback sensor, a thermocouple or something, that then would have to go to an analog amplifier, which at the time, uh, I know in the 1970s there were plenty of solid-state stuff, but in the older companies there were still plenty of tube electronics handling all that. So, oh, no way. Yeah, yeah. So, so there was a, a lot of... And, Eureka was very interesting in that they did so much of their own in-house stuff. Um, 
they they start with raw steel and then cut it to to dimension for shafts for the motors and then they wound their own motors and they would really uh yeah and then large presses to stamp the shells that made the covers for the uh you know at the bottom of the vacuum cleaners and uh the tubes the tubes that made the handles that they put through benders and so on all of this was uh, like i say that was where i learned uh at the time, I guess it was kind of like simple computing. Yeah, that's uh, incredible. So, I mean, so few companies do that I mean, nowadays, especially. I mean, with the global market, there's you got components coming from you know all over the world by fifty, sixty, you know, hundred different manufacturers to make one product. It's right. A, it's amazing they were able to do it all in house back then. Yes. Yeah. It was, uh, and it was kind of nice to to see that because then when I see things today, I say, "Oh, I know how that's done." Yeah. Where the average person, even somebody in my position today at a at a factory like at Toyota or GM or someplace, uh, they're getting a lot of this stuff shipped in already done overseas or in in small shops somewhere else, and and uh, so the, it's, uh, it's a different process. Yeah, it's it's neat to have seen all that stuff. Uh, absolutely, like I know a lot of those companies they rely on Bosch and a couple of those other large international companies for all the you know components that go into them. And I think. Last time I was reading a book on Tesla, they had the highest percentage of in-house manufactured um, components to actually go into the car. And it's because, you know, when they were making it, it was revolutionary at the time. Right, yeah. right. And <laughs> But there's an advantage to that. Oh, yeah, and, absolutely. You know, the the whole economy veered the other way for, yep. you know, through the 90s, the 2000s, and Decades. 2010s. They, they worked more and more to outsourcing. Mm-hmm. And now they're realizing that, well, you don't have control over your supply chain, yep. and uh, and like you say with Tesla, they need specific things. Yeah. So now we don't buy off the shelf; we buy very specifically mm. from ourselves. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and that gives you a little bit more freedom and independence. Where mm-hmm. if you needed to do a very, very specific thing, you're not going to get you can't get pushback from someone you're not working with. You just tell the team, "We're going to do it. Let's make it happen, and let's you know work together to overcome any of any obstacles that might be in our way." Make something revolutionary, right? Right. So, so anyway, at uh, at Eureka was the first place I ran into computers being used for control of the machines. So what, guess, kind, what kind of computers were they? Well, they're they're called programmable logic controllers or PLCs. They're the standard control for uh, industrial processes. I, I told you that most of them were, if they were digital in nature, uh, turn on a motor, turn off a motor, turn on a valve, turn off a valve. That was all done by relays. And some of those control cabinets were huge. I mean, literally some of the boxes I would go into to troubleshoot would have a thousand relays. Really? And they're all hand wired. So, Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's like, uh, imagine, you know, the designing and then the, the building of the panels, and then some poor sucker like me coming along and saying, oh, something's not working. Now let's trace, you know, look at the prints and trace through 10 different relays to find out which contact is not working or what relay is broken or or et cetera. It's just, uh, it was a lot of fun. So then they came up with this idea called uh, uh, programmable logic controlling. I think the first ones were Modicon, Although the first ones I saw were Alan Bradley, and that Alan Bradley is probably the giant in the industry, or at least was before I retired. Yeah, <laughs> um, and 
that was neat because instead of wires snaking all through a panel, you would see uh, dozens of wires going to a, uh, a terminal strip on a electronic card that plugs in. And then mm -hmm. you would see a bank of electronic cards with all these wires connected to the terminal strips. Really? Uh, yeah. So there, there would be, you know, hundreds of wires all hooked up to these, these uh, banks of, of electronics. Mm -hmm. And then there was a microprocessor at the heart of it. Matter of fact, the first Allen Bradley had like uh, four or five plug-in cards just for the processor. Really? Yeah. So was the processor split up, or was it four different processors? Or well, what was, what was that like? <laughs> there weren't too many microprocessors around at the time, and yeah. those that were needed lots of support in in terms of I/O chips and uh, you know other types. I mean, if you've ever looked at a computer board. Uh, today, mm -hmm. take one of those integrated circuits probably performs five or six functions that, that back then was put onto a single plug-in card. The oh. card being, you know, maybe this big plugged yeah. into a, a pretty good butt-sized box. Oh, my gosh. And then you'd have, you know, the, the racks of, of wiring. Uh, and all of that then took the place of those relays. Mm -hmm. Um, and the, some of it was inputs. So the first one I ran into, they had tons of uh, what we call limit switches or, or switches that would detect the position of a, of a device out on the machinery. And it had, I'm not sure how many, but dozens of them. So all of those were wired into an input card. And then there were um, valves that turned on uh, to indicate or to initiate some process, usually steam moving somewhere or, or um, uh, hydraulics, for example. The first one was pneumatic, so it was all air valves. And um, then there's also lights and switches, you know, the start button, the stop button. Oh, yeah. And the power lights and all these are wired into those, those input-output cards. And... Uh, at that time, I was just a dumb electrician. The engineers wouldn't let us touch the programming units. Really? Yeah. Uh, until they get in, got in over their heads because it was new tech, and yeah. nobody knew what was going on. <laughs> Eventually, we got in there and said, hey, well, we can help figure this out. Yeah. And uh, so. What, what, what was the most difficult thing, usually, when you're troubleshooting those types of complex systems? Um, you know, it's... It's a matter of understanding basic logic, mm. and it helped because I had already, I, I mentioned that I had gotten involved with electronics with my brother, and, and we got involved with some of the early computers and early, early computer programming. So I was able to take basic programming techniques, like, for example, if-then-else. Yeah. That was something that was foreign to most people in the industry at the time. But at the same time, if you think about it, if the start switch, then turn on the start light. I mean, it's that simple. That's, uh, that's how the programming went in there. So then it was a matter of if you're troubleshooting and say, okay, well, this, this is the outcome I'm looking for. Now go back through and look for the input. Now, in the relay case, it was a matter of tracing wires, relay to relay to relay. In the case of the programmable controllers, then you ended up with um, 
a program. It was a, like an interpreter program that, that interpreted something we call ladder logic. Mm-hmm. Old electricians understand a ladder logic because that was a representation of the contacts on the relays or the switches and the coils or, or outputs, uh, the coils of a relay or of a valve or the actual light. So uh, the ladder logic then was being used in the programmable controllers, and it was really easy for me. I could read the, the prints and say, okay, this should be on yeah. and find out why it's not on. The nice thing about electronics uh, using the PLCs is you, um, you didn't have contacts breaking down because they were virtual contacts. They were virtual. It was just a bit. Yeah. It was Boolean logic turned into a, a relay analogous type, type thing. So it was, it, oh, I could talk about PLCs <laughs> for an hour if you want to. That's <laughs> awesome. What, so what kind of challenges or what was it like going from Eureka in that type of factory environment to – going to Caterpillar where you're working on even even more ginormous machineries or machines. Yeah, that that is interesting because uh, both companies were old companies. Uh, Eureka had started in the early 1900s. Caterpillar, I'm not even sure when they started. They may even predate that. But uh, Caterpillar was interesting in that they did a ton of in-house engineering. Uh, even though we did all our processes in Eureka in-house, they still, the engineers relied on going out to outside suppliers to get the technology that they needed. And so machines would come in finished, uh, ready to to do their jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas with Caterpillar, their engineers designed their machines. Not all of them, but a lot of them. That's incredible. So a lot of the, when you see the machines, is it the all the robotic arms or all the, com- all the machines that help support the assembly line process and the process of making the parts for the, uh, all the machines they make? Yeah, it's, it's kind of hard for the average person to grasp, but if you look at a Caterpillar uh, tractor, a D10 or a D9, mm-hmm. try to imagine that all of that uh, at the beginning was just raw metal, <laughs> that, oh, wow. that had been delivered in the form of sheet metal or blocks of steel, or, et cetera, and, uh, and that it had to be stamped or machined or otherwise shaped, welded, and then assembled. So when you we say what processes, I, what I did at Caterpillar when I first started there was in the forging shop, mm-hmm. the... Um, you know, they have the crawler tracks. Oh, yeah. What they they're look, famous for. Yeah, it looks like well, there's case. links yeah. that hold each of those together that are that have a hole on either end, so mm-hmm. pin pivots. So as that yeah. goes around, it supports the, uh, the tracks. Mm-hmm. Well, those things come in basically as a bar of steel. Depending on which tractor you're making, it could be a three-inch uh, square oh, wow. or four- or five-inch or six-inch square bar of steel. Mm-hmm. And... It goes through a shear, which shears it off into bars, uh, a length of a certain length, you know, from from raw to, let's say, uh, a foot long, yeah. and then it would go through ovens. Uh, that's some of the analog processes where they would heat those to twenty three hundred degrees, more or less, till they're glowing oh, wow. orange, and then yeah. it would go through a stamping press, which would stamp the basic shape. Then it would go through another press that would punch the holes on either end. And then it would have to go to machining 
mills that would uh, cut the holes to a specific diameter and cut the edges where it connects to the tracks to a flat surface. And then the holes were drilled and tapped. That's all just for just for that one component. Just for that one component. That's a lot. <laughs> now look at look at all the components in a in a tractor, a caterpillar tractor. And imagine oh, yeah. all of that stuff has its own sets of processes all tied together. Oh wow! So and then you were helping support all the machines on that whole assembly line. Yes. Were, were they was it segmented from the rest of the factory network, or was it like an independent ecosystem, or do they all talk to the other yeah, parts of the factory? Kinda, How yeah, did that work? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, there were two sections in the building that I worked in when I first started, and one had four or five lines that was all just the track links, mm-hmm. and they ranged from the, the D4 tractor up to the, the D11, which is, again, those I think were six-inch uh, square bars mm-hmm. that were uh, going through, but they all had the similar process, the shear, the heat, the, the mm-hmm. punch, and so on. But uh, then there was another section at the other end of the building, and that was all powdered metal pressing, which oh, is really? a whole other process altogether. And I, I'd never seen it before. I went to Caterpillar. Yeah, uh, that's where they take metal, steel metal, in the form of a powder, and they pour it into a mold, and then a hydraulic press presses it down, and makes it a shape. Really? Uh, yes. And most of what I remember were hydraulic. Uh, manifolds and fittings Mm -hmm. so where the hydraulic pipe connects to the hydraulic pump on the tractor there's a hunk of metal with holes for the pipe to go through and then bolt holes to hold it down so it had you know plenty of strength and then they'd run those through uh, 1600 degree furnaces to to uh, make the metal strong and and of a certain uh, hardness Oh my gosh! And then then they go to a, a bank of of machine uh, CNC machines to to drill some of the stu- the final holes to exact tolerances and um, so that 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 was all in one building that was compartmentalized so there was two processes set up in that building there was some more other, uh, other areas that I worked in too but that was the main thing now if I went to the next building over um, there they were working on uh, I'm trying to remember the, the the next building over was final assembly for the tractors. The one after that was where they welded the the bodies. Um, you know, you get yeah. these huge hunks of steel that is the the body for the tractor, oh, yeah. and they would run through these mach- machining centers that would you know I mean just hog out tons tons of metal. But they also had uh, welding. A ton of welding going on in that that building. Uh, most of that was manual, but they were going really? increasingly to uh, uh, hey, machines do it. Machines do it. Yeah. Then I left Caterpillar and went on. So I'm. Yeah, they they make some general. I think I was reading a couple months ago. Just fun facts: like the the largest truck in the world was made by Caterpillar at one point. Like you know, it was for the mining or the the wheel, just the wheel of the Caterpillar. Was it's taller than like a NBA player? Yeah, like it's astonishing the sheer size and magnitude of those of those machines. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine all the R and D and all the stuff that goes into you know making the engines and all of that. I mean, it's astonishing. Were the mechanisms for controlling the assembly process and the t- 
technological support and electronic support was that similar to Eureka in terms of, or was it kind of on a whole nother level? Because I know it was a little bit more in the future. Uh, it was mostly the same, but yes, it was at a slightly different level. Uh, at Eureka, when we brought in a PLC, it was dedicated to a specific machine and a specific process. Uh, at Caterpillar, uh, several of the production lines that I described at the beginning, uh, they had a single PLC or a supervisory PLC, and then it it modified everything or, or monitored everything on the line. And so it was, it was capable of not only knowing when any machine in the process was down, uh, also controlling the process, and it would also report and even print out reports to uh, to management to let them know what was going on. So, oh, cool! Yeah, what was your favorite part about working there? One, maybe a fun challenge that you came across at, at Caterpillar. At, yeah. yeah. Um, well, it was the the challenge was just learning new stuff. Every I've worked in about six different factories, and each factory had something different, different processes. Mm-hmm. And they're for different controls. There was a lot in common, like the PLCs, for example. Mm-hmm. But there was, you know, what what their requirement, what the pieces you put in a car, for example, when I worked at Mitsubishi, are different than yeah. the videotapes when I worked at Tandy, different than the tractors right. when I worked at Caterpillar and so on. So each one of those, some of them were the same types of machines, just different scale. Mm-hmm. You know, instead of making a two-inch part, we're making a three-feet, three-foot part or, yeah. you know. And that that has its own challenges, but uh, so. And then what was it like going over to Mitsubishi? I mean, that's one of the largest automotive companies on the planet. They make some really cool stuff. Yeah, yeah, uh, that was uh, that was very interesting because they brought over technology from Japan, mm-hmm. which really wasn't too much different from what we did, but um, it it had a little twist to it. Yeah. Uh, but when I started, I started there in the, what they call the body shop or the weld shop. And it was an area where they take all the pieces that had come out of the punch presses in different shapes, and they would weld them together. And as they went down the line, more pieces were added until eventually, at the end of our production line, they came out the shape of a car. And there were no wheels, engines, or anything. It was all, it hadn't been painted yet, but... Yeah. It was uh, it, like so. Like I say, it went from uh, small pieces to big pieces to uh, full bodies. Yeah, and, and uh, we had at that time, I'm guessing three or four hundred robots in there. Oh and wow! They, and they were all Japanese robots. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we got to learn those. And that also that factory opened in '86, I think. But I didn't start there until um, ninety, so uh, they still had older robots. I say old robots in yeah. nineteen ninety. They were old robots, so <laughs> so that very similar to what I was talking about uh, with the PLCs at, at my first job. Uh, these had lots of circuit boards in it. You know, it wasn't just here, let's let's put a PC on it and control everything, which they yeah. probably could have. Instead, there's a, a different circuit board for every function, and uh, and they uh, robots is really it. 
it's kind of like a CNC machine where you have multiple axes. It's just with every robot, there's six axes. Yeah. And so all you're doing is you're saying, okay, move your motor until you get to this spot, mm. except I'm moving six motors until I get to a common spot, a spot that I want it to be. And yeah. Uh, that sounds like a lot of programming. If each, each robotic arm or each robotic robot yes. has six different motors inside of it. Yes. Oh, my gosh. How, how did you guys go around programming that? Do you have a central computer you can log into, or do you have to go to each machine and tweak it? Into, obviously, you have to tweak it individually to the specs, but do you have to control them all individually? What, what was that process like? Well, they all of them that we worked on had a pendant, mm-hmm. and each pendant had uh, a motor control for every axis. But they also had uh, modes for controlling multiple axes together. So I could say move one that makes my arm go up and down, mm-hmm. or I could say move three motors at once to make the end point go up and down, which is a totally different movement. Yeah. Uh, so that was all uh, – it was a mature enough technology that, that they had some pretty advanced functions. Mm-hmm. And uh, my job was generally – um, gee, the mach- machine's not moving like it's supposed to. Go find out why. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and usually there's there's a feedback loop. It's it's kind of like you know any other process. I talked about thermocouples and heat processes. Yeah. Well, in this case, there is something that tells you how far each motor is moved, mm-hmm. and and if you program it, you're saying we want the each uh, motor to go X number of ticks or X number of millimeters or whatever it is and stop there or, or wait, look for your next instruction there. Mm-hmm. And if it didn't get to where it was supposed to go, usually there was either broken wire in the feedback to, to the uh, transducer that said where it was or, or there was a problem with the motor not getting the signal to go to move, et cetera. So it's, it's just one of those things is if something's not working, you say, well, what is it not doing? And yeah. trace it back, you know, to the controls. And what was it like building the iconic Mitsubishi Eclipse? I remember <laughs> the first Fast and Furious came out, that green Mitsubishi. Yeah. Everyone wanted that, and I would say still do. They're becoming a collectible item now. I mean, I, when I was a kid, I thought they were imported from Japan, but I didn't know they were made in normal Illinois. Yes, they were. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, matter of fact, I think they still have one modeled eclipse but it's not the yeah, eclipse eclipse yeah, yeah it's, it's so. an suv now it's it's a fascinating trend to see a lot of automotive companies tra- not rebranding it but they're taking the brand from a car to an suv because chevrolet is doing the same thing with the camaro it was a sports car for darn near half a century and now it's going to become an suv i believe in 2024 I, I, oh, okay. so there's a couple companies doing it yeah because suvs sell it's the Time's big change the volume yeah <laughs> Uh, there's an interesting story about the Eclipse. I mean, they were already in production or ramping up. I, I wasn't there at the very beginning, mm-hmm. but I was there as they were still ramping up production. I think they were making about 200 a day when I was. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that was pretty involved. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, they, there was a, a parade that they were supposed to be in, um, and, you know, we would – participate like Labor Day Parade. I'm not sure. This was right before I hired in. And some of the guys who had some spare time, usually it was the maintenance guys who had spare time because we were always waiting for something to break down. Yeah. And on the good <laughs> days, we didn't have to do very much at all. Yeah. Um, 
But uh, some some guys got together and said, you know, we think there should be an Eclipse convertible. Yeah. And so what they did, because it's a unibody, which means there is no frame underneath, you can't just take the, the, the roof off because it's part of the support. It's structural, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what they did is they, they got some... Uh, steel steel beams and they welded onto the bottom of a car then they cut the roof off and they put it in the parade oh really and immediately it was like it caught fire everybody wanted everybody in the factory wanted to build convertibles and a lot of people you know eclipse fans said hey when can i get one when's the spider coming out yeah but uh it took a long time before the top brass especially the japanese wrap their heads around it being a profitable venture yeah because you're talking about you know a lot of machinery going in and uh eventually uh we got our way so what what extra machinery was there because i I know it sounds like it's an entirely different you have to reinforce the bottom i guess what additional machines or steps of the process did they have to add to that to make it come come to fruition yeah that was interesting because we had several models going down the main line we had the um the Gallant, which was oh, a yeah. four-door, I and uh, I can't remember the other one. It was a compact. We didn't do it for very long. Mm-hmm. And um, Lancer? It was, uh, it was before the Lancer. Oh, it was a small, small, and it wasn't a sporty. I can't oh, remember yeah. what it was. But uh, then uh, there were also variations because we also did an Eagle version of yeah, the Eagle Talon. Yes. Yeah, and, I remember that. And a Plymouth version. Yeah. And so each of those... Uh, with the robots, it was pretty nice that you could program, well, what variation or what model or variation is in front of me now, and I'll run the program associated with that. Yeah. We did that with the PLCs. The PLCs would receive from the previous station, oh, it's model it's uh, model three, which was uh, the Eagle. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, And then it, there was a series of other bits set in that, that word that said uh, it's a... Uh, uh, got a four cylinder or six cylinder it's got you know whatever they are and the minor part differences meant the robots had to move slightly differently to weld those in the correct way and but when the convertible came along the problem was different we couldn't get the right welds in the right places on all the parts we needed to so we actually had to build a separate line for for the area where we put the side bodies on the underbody. Really? So if you can imagine, the underbody is is just the the floor, yeah. the uh, what holds up the motor and yeah. the the bottom of the trunk. Yeah, the side bodies then hold the doors, the the side wells on the engine and the side wells on the trunk and also the wheel wells okay so those had to be welded onto the underbody and so we had a whole separate production line uh for that again because the the side bodies were so different not having a top on them and so is that because the side bodies need to be more structurally reinforced yes they they used heavier steel uh there was a lot of reinforcement because we couldn't we couldn't build it with um steel beams underneath that was yeah. <laughs> that wasn't going to work so they they put thicker steel along the sides and and also on the runners underneath the so it was it was just a whole different model up to a point yeah once we got all that put together the side bodies were on the underbody and 
then we would send it down the uh, the main line with the rest of the cars. So we had to have we started using automatically guided vehicles, AGVs, to take it from the new production line and to an insertion point in the old production line. Really? Yeah. So is that like a conveyor belt where the cars will go different parts of the factory based on the skew or the skews of the variations to being convertible or hard top or right. Well, what we had the automatically guided vehicle was basically uh, untethered. Mm-hmm. It would travel uh, down the aisle. You know, there'd be fork trucks traveling down the aisle carrying things, and yeah. and then here would come this vehicle moving on at a you know decent clip. Uh, you yeah. could walk next to it, but uh, really, and it would at the end of one the one production line a lift would pick the car up and drop it down onto the automatically guided vehicle. Once it cleared out of the way, then the vehicle would take off on its own and travel a path until it got to another area where it was lifted off of the AGV, put on a conveyor, and then that went into the main line. So, Really? Yeah. That's awesome. I had no idea that existed back then. Yeah. Yeah. How did how were they how were those controlled or was it automatic so we go you know from here from you know from point A to point B in the factory or would it you have to take into account variations like if there's a a pallet or someone you know walking in between would it automatically know to stop or what was what were the controls like on that Yeah that well basically there is that the uh, there there would be a place where it stopped mm-hmm. where it could uh uh it w- could put down its charging arms to charge the batteries while it was sitting there Oh, it's battery powered. Yeah. Really. Oh yeah. It automatically guided. It was. Uh, That's pretty cool. Totally autonomous, and then uh, there was a radio frequency transmitter that would give it the go signal or the stop signal and or any auxiliary commands. Yeah. And uh, but uh, they were very simple. I mean, it, it, it had a very simple job. Yeah. Get the car. Drop off the car. That was it. And uh, and but it would also um, use. Um, light proximity sensors that would break a light beam and to say I'm here and, uh, you know. So that, that light beam being almost like a proximity sensor where if someone's walking in front of it, it would notice it's being a blockage and yes. automatically come to a stop or something like that? Yeah, then, then, the, then the other machine would say, oh, it's here, yeah. so what do I do next and, and so on. So um, That's incredible. It, it's such a legendary vehicle. I bet that's a, that's a rare, unique, really neat story. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was it was fun, especially the convertible. We yeah. really enjoyed building that one. And I don't think it was ever as profitable just because not the numbers, the volume, were built. the volume yeah. of it just wasn't high enough. Right. Yeah. Right. But uh, but it was fun to build for a while. So. What, what were a couple other variations, or rather, what were a couple of other things that were different about the convertible that made manufacturing it a little bit more unique, a little bit more challenging than the coupe? Well, the hard the hard top. The the first thing that was challenging wasn't an inherent to the car itself, and that was we had to build a new production line, and we were already full oh, oh my <laughs> in gosh. the building. It's like, okay, where are we going to put this thing? Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, of course, the material handling people, we said, well, you're going to move all of that sta- those stacks of parts that yeah. you have over there and put them somewhere else because we're using that space. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, eventually they tore down a wall of the building, expanded it, and then what the equipment they put in was was pretty different from everything else we'd done. Um, at that time, we were also transitioning to newer robotics. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went to the Fanuc, which is 
Panic is like the premier line of robots. I, I yeah. at least it was for me yeah. when I was working uh, before I retired. But uh, and they were much more evolved than the Japanese robots we had before. Mm. And uh, were they a little bit easier to program and perform maintenance yes. on, or yes. in what ways were it a little bit better? Well, number one, the software that that you would used to control it was much more advanced. The processor they used to control it was much more advanced. Um, so troubleshooting was a little bit more like uh, uh, swapping parts, you know? Yeah. That's a lot of, a lot of electric tech, electronic techs I knew were just part swappers, you yeah. know? <laughs> and uh, so there was a lot less dealing with component level stuff is like, oh, it's got to be on that board, swap the board. Yeah. And especially with the time constraints in a production environment, it's like, they don't want you to trace it on a board. <laughs> it's no. like, if it's on that board, swap the board. Boss it. So, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and the, but the pendants were much more advanced. Mm -hmm. um, they were, instead of just a, a metal box with a couple buttons on top, they, they were molded boxes that had, more buttons with more functions and much more um, advanced uh, uh, programming things. Mm. Uh, so you could say, I want this point to that point, you know, just now program it yourself. Here, just yeah. go. <laughs> <laughs> and it would do it. But uh, so it was fun to get into the more advanced stuff while we were doing the convertible. Absolutely. And then I think you were telling me earlier uh, off air, that was your uh, union environment and your action. What was the interactions like with them that inspired you to start running for office? Well, um, actually, I, I got involved in politics casually at first. You know, I guess if you want to talk about politics, I yeah. got to rewind a little bit yeah. uh, because I, when I was very young, I didn't really understand politics. Uh, like when Goldwater ran, I was 14 years old, and I just knew he is A-U-H-2-O is Goldwater, and that was it. That's all I knew about politics, <laughs> yeah. uh, nothing. It was around um, the time of Carter and Reagan that I began to say, you know, what is this all about? Yep. How does it and, work? Yep. And as a matter of fact, I think it was probably during Border Carter, I – I saw a thing in the newspaper, the local newspaper, that had a bunch of questions. Answer these. It'll tell you whether you're Republican or Democrat. Yeah. And interestingly, I found I'm not either one of those things. <laughs> yeah. So, And it was 1972 was when the Libertarian Party started. It was formed then. And so it was, it was around the time that Reagan and, um, Reagan and Carter were facing off that I, th I was saying, yeah, Maybe I should look into libertarian because that sounds more like what I am. Yeah. So, but then from then on, it was still just casual. It's like I read it in the news, you know, shake my hand at the TV screen <laughs> yeah. and curse. But, uh, but other than that, I'd go to work. Mm -hmm. And I worked overtime, you know, in the factory, especially in the maintenance, you always worked overtime. Oh, yeah. Those machines don't take nights off. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Or, or holidays or anything. Yeah. So, um, so it was when I was at Mitsubishi, and I remember uh, I was on third shift, and I had a lot of, uh, of what, I, what I call labor Democrats. You know, the, the Democratic Party has several different factions. The labor Democrats tend to be of a certain mindset, 
Oh yeah, was it a? I forgot. Was it a UAW shop or? Yeah, so it was Auto UAW. Yeah. I was, I was. Uh, which is the United Auto Workers, which for folks at home, it's the biggest union for the automotive industry, which is used by most of the big three, like right. Ford, GM, and all those folks. Right. When I was at Eureka, I was in the machinist union. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I worked in non-union shops for a while. Then I went uh, to Caterpillar, which was UAW, and then I went to Mitsubishi, that was also UAW. So I, I have a lot of experience in union shops. Uh, yeah. Uh, I didn't get involved in their politics much either, but mm-hmm. certainly I I was aware. I went to some union meetings, but uh, I also had lots of um, interesting discussions with some of my colleagues. Mm-hmm. You know, again, they would bring their their attitudes and and perspectives from the Democratic side, and then there was rare, but some uh, Republicans on in in our areas too. Yeah. Uh, and I disagreed with both of them, and, and yeah. I'd get to where I'd start arguing with both of them. And, <laughs> and, you know, it's one of those things where you start thinking, like, I should do something about this. Yeah. Somebody ought to do something. Yeah. And it's like, well, maybe I'm the guy that should do something. Yeah. So um, that was about the time the Tea Party started to form is when I really got interested in doing something. Mm-hmm. The first Tea Party was put on by Ron Paul in 2007. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. And um, then there was another one in Illinois, like that same year. I wasn't involved in that, but but I was watching that, and my wife was getting interested in it. She was doing the same thing. She was yelling at the TV also, and we were both (laughs) thinking, this is is wrong stuff. We need to change this. So she started getting involved with a... uh, a group that formed post 9-11. It was called the 9-11 Project. Mm-hmm. And they were very conservative. And, then, of course, I was libertarian. There's, there's some crossover there. Oh, yeah. And so, so we were comparing notes. And she said, well, come to one of these meetings with me. And I said, okay. And then, then after that, I said, well, we're going to form a local chapter of the Libertarian Party. I want you to come to one of those meetings. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, my good friend Lupe Diaz was the founder, and and he was always one that that he would look at you and say, "What are you going to do?" Or he would tell you what you're going to do. So yeah. in our founding meeting, uh, my wife and I, my wife Karen, uh, uh, became the webmaster, and I was the secretary uh, of the first uh, first iteration of the McLean County Libertarian Party in, in McLean County, Illinois. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, at that point, it was just, let's go to the bar, have a meeting every month. Good excuse to go have some drinks and, yeah. and complain about politics. Right. But I told you, <laughs> Lupe was one of those. Is like, uh, what are you going to do? I like that. And so he came to one meeting, uh, and he started saying, okay, everybody needs to be thinking about running for office. And he literally was going and says, I think you would be really good at city council. And he'd go to somebody else and say, we really need somebody to run for uh, uh, county clerk mm-hmm. for the county, et cetera. Um, and at that meeting, he was getting involved at the state level, and he came to me and he says, we have a problem at the state level. We need somebody to run for governor. I'd never run for office in my life. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was sitting in the corner while he was pointing his finger at other people thinking he's going to pass me <laughs> over and instead he picked me and and I 
I said, well, I'll have to talk to Karen about it. And, uh, and she and I did. And, and this is one thing that I think is very important for all the people who are thinking about getting involved, uh, especially at higher levels. It's one thing to go to city council or, or to the uh, county or something, but, but if you want to get involved at statewide or, or, or national politics, you need to have your family behind you. And so I talked with my, with Karen about it, and uh, we agreed that, hey, why not? Let's do this. Yeah. Uh, now, mind you, I was still working 45 to 55 hours a week in the factory. Oh, wow. And I had no idea what it was involved in a statewide race for governor. Yeah. Um, so uh, but we said, hey, let's do it. And what, what was the first step? Oh, the first step was getting the nomination of the state party. Mm -hmm. So we went to, it was in 2009, we went to the state uh, convention. Mm -hmm. And there were a couple other people that were interested, but they didn't uh, present a, a good plan for campaigning. Mm -hmm. uh, apparently I did. So, uh, I, and again, I had no idea what I was talking about, but by, <laughs> by golly, I uh, I put together a plan and they liked it. And so now is that, something, is that something where the committee or the, the local folks vote for the nomination, or what was that process like? To get? Um, that, well, that's interesting because it, for the Republicans and Democrats, they pick their nominees at their convention or at their primary elections. Mm -hmm. I want you to think about this. Yeah. The Libertarians and the Greens and the Constitutionalists, et cetera, we all pick our candidates in a convention that we pay for, mm -hmm. attended by our party people, all right, yeah. and our members, and we vote on who we think should represent us. Okay. Mm -hmm. However, the Republicans and the Democrats, they do it through the primary system, and that means they're tasking all taxpayers to pay for their selection process Really? Yeah. Nobody thinks about it that way, but that's what the primaries are all about, mm. is Republicans and Democrats picking their candidates that you're going to have to vote for in the fall. Yeah. All right? So um, so what I did, you know, I, I didn't have to campaign then to the public like they do, yeah. trying to get people to come vote for their party. I, I campaigned to libertarians, mm. and, and I let them know that I wanted to be their candidate and I can't remember how many people attended that there were probably 80 or 90 people attended the convention in Illinois and, mm -hmm. and I got the majority so that's awesome and after that it was panic yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's real now <laughs> yeah it's real now how am I going to do this and uh and luckily at that time I, I mentioned it was during the tea party revolution that was going on mm -hmm. so Interestingly, there were lots of rallies that were going on. People in, I, I assume in Texas they did the same thing, but I know in Illinois, mm -hmm. all up and down the state, they would have rallies. And people would talk about the Constitution and, and, and limited government, et cetera. And it's like, that is a very libertarian position to take. Yeah. Um, the problem was the Republicans wanted to co-opt that and, yeah. and take all those activists into their fold. I saw that. Oh, yeah. I warned Karen. I said, you watch. Within a year, these will all be Republicans. But we went around to all those rallies. We managed to get speaking time at all the rallies, and we were able to uh, 
get our name out there because I mean you're talking you know hundreds hundreds of people at each one. Yeah. And um, then we also started going to uh, uh, county fairs and any other organ you know organized group that we could find. Mm. And at that point, then we started getting television interviews. Oh, neat. Uh, I was on a couple. Uh, news stations up in Chicago. I live downstate, but uh, we got in the major markets that way. So I had a lot of success mm. getting the word out um, just because we were riding that Tea Party wave. Yeah. So a uh, lot of fun. Was, it, was that the primary source of campaign advertising? Was it the sit-down interviews with local uh, news stations and going to the physical conventions? Uh, yeah, that was... I don't know if that was the primary. I mean, we bought radio ads. We did a television ad, oh, which, cool. which we couldn't afford to put in the Chicago market, but it, oh, yeah. but it was all over <laughs> downstate. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we still were participating in the, the political process the same way Republicans and Democrats do, in that you, you beg for money, yeah. <laughs> make promises, beg for money, and uh, then spend the money on... Yard signs, yep. flyers, yep. commercials, whatever, and uh, just the we were at a disadvantage to raise very much money. How so? Well, uh, the Republicans and Democrats have stacked the political process in a way to try to keep out what small parties or what they like to call them third parties. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so the libertarians in most states are not treated on equal footing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have extra hurdles to get on the ballot. If you want to, uh, let's call it voter choice. If yeah. the voter wants to have the choice of a libertarian, then they they have to go through extra uh, efforts to get on the ballot mm-hmm. or else they're excluded. And, and matter of fact, having... Uh, president on the ballot in all 50 states only has happened a couple times for minor parties. Each time it's always been the Libertarian Party. We're the third largest party in the country. Uh, In Illinois, there's every state has their own laws. Mm. In Illinois, we had particularly onus uh, hurdles to get over uh, because the way to get on the ballot in Illinois is through a petitioning process. Mm-hmm. You have to go out and get so many signatures so your candidate can get it on the ballot. Mm-hmm. The number of signatures that you have to get is vastly greater than what the Republicans and the Democrats have to get. Really? What's the delta, or what's, what's that difference? Well, uh, in, I can speak to Illinois. Again, right, every right, state is different. Some yeah. are easier and harder, but in Illinois... Um, a Republican that wants to go to Congress, for example, mm-hmm. uh, a run for Congress, would get have to get half a percent, 0.5 percent, uh, the number of signatures equal to 0.5 percent of all the votes cast for the Republican in the previous election. Mm-hmm. Same thing for the Democrat, 0.5 percent of all the Democratic votes cast. Mm-hmm. For the Libertarians... It has to be 5%. Now, that's a tenfold increase, but it's wow. not based upon libertarian votes. It's actually based upon all votes cast. So What? 
So, yes. So that number is not just 10 times. It could be, you know, 15 times greater than what it is for the Republicans and the Democrats. So their number is not only the Libertarian Party, it's the Republicans, the Democrats, and the other parties, too. Yes. Or of interest to people who are not Libertarians, independents. You cannot run as a non-aligned person, Mm -hmm. uh, especially in Illinois, but this is true in a lot of states, uh, unless you're a millionaire. Because yeah. you need to be able to find people to get the number of signatures, go out and collect. And you have a limited window. In Illinois, it was 90 days to get. That's it? Yeah, in 90 days to get uh, somewhere between twenty five and 50,000 signatures, which I don't know if it sounds like a lot to you, but I'll guarantee yeah. you, if, <laughs> if you're out there with a the clipboard oh, approaching strangers <laughs> with this cold call, would you sign my petition so oh, I can yeah. get on the ballot? <laughs> It, it's a challenge. It's a big, big challenge. Oh, so, um, so a typical f- example would be: let's say there was an incumbent Republican in, uh, let's say, the fifth congressional district. It's a random number. Yeah. Uh, the Republican would probably need to get five or six hundred signatures. That's to, it. Yes, to get on as a congressional candidate. Mm-hmm. The Democrat, maybe. You know, seven or eight hundred. Yeah, but the libertarian would have to get something on the order of ten to twelve thousand or more. Twelve thousand signatures versus five hundred to six hundred. Yes, and remember that it have to be voters in that district. So if you're out there collecting signatures, now you're going to have to say, oh, "Are you are you in my district?" And you yeah. know, most voters don't know. And if you get the wrong signatures, yeah. those are kicked off, and they oh, try geez. to challenge you to do, do the other do republicans and democrats have that limitation of the district as well or is it oh yeah they do or, okay uh but because of these limitations and the hurdles mm-hmm. uh what happens is that the republicans and democrats are able to fundraise much quicker because so? they know that with the low hurdle mm-hmm. that they'll be on on the ballot and therefore, they can go to their donors and say, all right, I need to start campaigning now. And this is, for example— So is that—I'm oh, sorry, really quick. So is that for sure, if you get 500 or if you hit that benchmark as a Republican or Democrat, once you hit that um, threshold, are you 100% guaranteed to be on the ballot as an option for a voter to choose? If you're not being challenged within your party for that position, yes. What do you mean challenged? Well, I mean, again, they run in the primaries. So, oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So— uh, so once they get that 500 signatures, if they're unopposed, then they're on. If yeah. they're if they're opposed, the other challenger needs 500 signatures. But the winner, you know, then doesn't have to collect any more signatures to be on the fall ballot. Oh, okay. However, they they know at the end of the primary election who their candidate is. Mm-hmm. That's the start of petitioning for the Libertarians. So why is there that big time gap? Because that's a big disadvantage, too. Exactly. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that the Republicans and Democrats made the law yeah. that is exclusive of the Libertarians. So, yeah, they, they put every little hurdle they can in the way. Mm-hmm. And um, so the, the Libertarians don't know at least until the middle of June and – Due to the ability to challenge those signatures, a lot of times they don't know until late July or August 
really? if they're going to be on the ballot in November. So even if they do, so if you yeah. go to a donor and you say, "I'd like you know, I'd like you to help me campaign," they're going to say, "Well, come right. back in August and and we'll talk about it." Yeah. Which by that time, it's really late to be planning your commercials and, and yeah. buying your yard signs. And so all that takes time. It does. It does, and uh, and money. So by that time. Most donors have already committed to one of the two big parties anyway. Yeah. So our donor base is is small mm-hmm. for those reasons. Now, uh, it's also true that most media is aligned left or right. Yeah, oh, very true. It's I, it's hard to find a simple uh, a nice middle ground these days. Yes, it unfortunately, is. it is. I mean, you know, my choice is to watch both because I don't have yeah. one that really represents me. That's that's. Same. I, I, I always appreciate all the sides of the argument and all the different data. Yeah, so, exactly. you know, I always tell people, you know, check everything out. You, you know, see what speaks to you the most. I mean, always mm-hmm. know what the other person's saying and thinking. I know one of the challenges I had is when I did get before a reporter, mm-hmm. uh, one of the big things is, well, do you think you'll be on the ballot? Yeah. And my th- issue was I want to talk about the things we need to do to fix yeah. the economy, to fix the state or to fix the country. Yeah. Okay. I have very specific things on my platform. Let's talk. And no, they wanted to talk about, well, what are the challenges in running as a libertarian? And yeah. uh, do you think you'll be on the ballot? And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, awesome. by the time you get through the questions about your ballot access, yeah. you never get to the substance. The substance. Yeah. So, so our, our, input into the national discourse has been minimized that way as well. Yeah. And especially because, I mean, some of those bullet points and some of those, some of those plans and ideas are what would attract people to vote for that because a lot of people do want, you know, less interference with businesses, you know, just kind of a lot of people just like to be left alone in general, I would think, but mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard to get those messages out if they're, cause I agree when I see a lot of these libertarian interviews, that is usually the reporter's main question is, you know, well, what are the odds? What's the timing? You know, what's it going to take to get you on the ballot? They, there's, oh. not, there's a lot less opportunity to talk about your initiatives, your plans, your goals, and your ideas that will really make a difference. One of my pet peeves is all, almost to a person, uh, they always ask, well, which one of your opponents would you choose? Yeah. <laughs> well, I wouldn't choose either of the opponents or I wouldn't yeah. be running, but they, <laughs> right? want you, they want you to be, uh, you know, to endorse one of the major party candidates. Yeah. Like, wow. Where does that come from? If I if I wanted that, if I believed in that person, I would vote for the like I would yeah. be in their party. Yeah, like <laughs> exactly. So, uh, but that's uh, you know that's part of the what I guess the mantle I took on as a libertarian, and mm-hmm. because I do believe very strongly in it, and so I've been involved at the county level mm-hmm. and at the state level in Illinois, and it was while I was. Uh, state chair. I ran for state chair and, and held that position for four years. Oh, that's awesome. What, what was that like? And, and I guess for the folks at home. That was very frustrating. What, what's, a, what, 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 uh, what's a state chair for folks who aren't in, uh, too tuned into politics? Okay. Well, all of the all the parties have have a structure within their states mm-hmm. that in which they um, they do the business of of keeping the party alive, making sure that uh, ballot access is is achieved. Organizing things across the state, trying to make sure that every county has an organized chapter or or uh, or, or central committee or whatever the law prescribes in that state, and um, 
then also helping the candidates that do announce get resources to, I mean, what we don't do is we don't fund campaigns for candidates. We don't, you know, do the, the work for them, but we get them in touch with volunteers who can walk for them or, you know. Is, is that another difference between the Republicans and Democrats? That, Cause do they that's have basic any, politics, you know. Oh, really? Okay. That's, that's one thing I, a lot of people tell me, we need to get money out of politics. It's like, you can't get money out of politics. <laughs> there would be no politics. <laughs> right. If you didn't see somebody on the television, if you didn't hear about them, you know, you didn't see them going door to door or, or sign a petition, they wouldn't be there. Yeah. There's no yard signs. There's no, you know, no recognition. Well, yeah. those yard signs cost thousands of dollars. Guess what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so there is, and matter of fact, I used to kind of have a, I, this was years ago, a, a guideline in my mind. If somebody said they were going to run for an office, I'd say, you know, they want to run for a state senator. I said, you have $100,000. Oh, my gosh. Can you raise $100,000? Yeah. Okay, well, realistically, you can run, but <laughs> you're not going to do anything. You, wow. want to, you want to run for Senate? Now, back then, it was if you want to run for Senate, you need between $1 and $2 million. $1 and $2 million? Yeah, oh well, gosh. the very next election, both the Republicans and Democrats in Illinois spent $5 million on theirs. So a, a piece? Yes. Oh, my gosh. A piece. And when I ran for governor, I spent $35,000. That's all I oh, could wow. raise and, that yeah. was, and spend in the time I had. Uh, both of my opponent or uh, major party opponents spent ten million dollars to run for governor. Jeez. Yes. Ten million. Now a lot of that comes from PACs and mm. uh, Republican. Uh, uh, there's a Republican governor's uh, PAC, and there's a. A lot of people don't realize there are limitations on how much you can individually contribute to a candidate. A lot yes. of people are like, "Oh yeah, I can just write a check for a million dollars to you know whoever." It's like. No. no, there's there's a limitation. That's why yeah. you have different mechanisms like super PACs. And just for the folks at home, what's a super PAC in layman's terms? Well, basically, it's it's a organization that collects money from donors, and then gives it to candidates. And they can give to depending on how the PAC is structured. It could be structured to give to a single candidate or to a slate of candidates. Uh, some PACs are such that you apply to them and say, "Well, I think I fit your." mold and party and and they'll they'll say well we'll see and and they dole it out to who they think is most successful but but the thing about that is then when the financial disclosure because every candidate in every state has some sort of financial disclosure if you run for for u.s office it's the fec federal election commission Mm -hmm. and each state has their own for candidates that are within the state that aren't federal you know congress and senate would be federal but State legislature would be uh, the state, whatever. I, again, I'm new to Texas. So oh, I'm yeah. still learning what that commission would be, Texas Election Commission probably. But anyway, um, when you disclose your your finances to make sure everything's on the up and up, uh, then it just, instead of saying Nicholas and Lex and Juan and, and Joe and Sam, it says uh, the U.S. political pack. And so, so you, you can hide who you're supporting. You, they say it's free speech, but yeah. we're hiding our free speech behind <laughs> these packs. Well, I'm, I mean, and if, for some people, it's almost a necessity, unfortunately, because there are 
you know, political ramifications. If you put, if you donate to a certain person, your employer, you know, that might come out and they might not like that. So I know a lot of people who they don't talk about their politics. And when they do donate, they do that, those routes specifically. So when that's released, no one can go, Oh, Hey, Bobby, he support this candidate. Right. That's not, that's against our company. We got to fire him. And in, in most States, it's not politically, uh, your politics aren't a protected um, part of firing someone. So they can do that. It's yes. a, it's a real thing. Right. Yeah. Right. And, uh, that's one thing that, like, another way in which libertarians are, are kind of disadvantaged because mm-hmm. if somebody supports us, then the Republicans are going to say, hey, mm-hmm. we need that money or we need that support. Yeah. Oh, well, uh, like I say, that's, that's the burden that we've got on ourselves, and we, we're going to keep struggling until we, uh, we break through. It's definitely a it's definitely a big challenge. It is a shame, especially if you tune into uh, presidential, especially presidential debates and all those. I mean, it's only it's a binary thing. It's a I want to say, and I will say it's usually a boring debate between two people. And growing up as a you know, uh, I say as adolescent, probably middle school and high school, and I was wondering like, well, why are there only two options? Like, why isn't the libertarian person there at the debate to have that opportunity to to present the ideas to the masses? Because in terms of advertising and getting the message out, those debates are crucial. That's what most people tune in. That's where we're going to see which ideas they like. They're going to surface to the top that they agree with, you know, politically or philosophy that they really agree with enough to cast their ballot for that person. And I can't remember. I'm not sure if there was last time a, a libertarian candidate had that opportunity. I think you were telling me earlier uh, a couple minutes ago that there's only a couple times in history they've gotten on the presidential ballot. On all fifty states. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I th- I can't remember the exact number. So, but it's 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 been the Libertarian Party. Is I don't think the others have managed to do that. So, yeah. uh, in terms of the presidential debates, that's controlled by a commission mm-hmm. that is fifty uh, fifty Democrats and Republicans. Oh, so, really? Oh, uh, they. Jeez. Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> It used to be ad hoc. For example, the League of Women Voters would invite who they wanted to, and you know, a college if they put it on would invite who they wanted to. Um, but it was in the 1990s. There was a fellow named Ross Perot got into the debate. Texas legend. Uh huh. And uh, he ruined it for everybody because that's when the R's and D's said uh, that's too much of a challenge for yeah. us. <laughs> He took too many votes, and we don't want that to ever happen again. So they created this presidential commission, and they have put an iron lock on it ever since. So he's one of my favorite entrepreneurs as well as, well as political figures. If he has, you can actually find the YouTube interviews from a while, you know, a while back. Where yeah. I mean, he actually had to pay for that airtime out of his own pocket. Yes, and he had some great. He was able to express a lot of his ideas very eloquently, and he would show you on the graph like. Basically, here's how you're getting screwed over by the government, and here's <laughs> here's what we need to do, and here's why this North American trade agreement isn't equal. It's because it's you know different things are measured. I remember he had a he was explaining one of the concepts in which we would manufacture something in the United States for ninety dollars, and we would send it to Mexico, and they would finish the assembly, and they would add maybe ten or fifteen dollars to value. So now it's worth maybe one hundred fifteen dollars, but then when they sell, sent it back to the U.S., it would be counted as Mexico giving us an import of one hundred fifteen dollars, but yeah. Realistically, I believe you should be measuring the delta because we made ninety. You mean we put in ninety dollars of value into that product? So I mean, that was one of the highlights I, I took away when I was watching one of his interviews a couple months ago. And yeah, I, unfortunately, you know, since then I haven't seen a, 
um, a lot of options where they're given that opportunity to have that type of press time and really express those ideas out there. And I think that hammers home also. He was he was rich. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he could afford to buy the the time. And the the question that immediately pops up in my mind is: Gee, are are the most qualified only the rich people, <laughs> or isn't there a lot of people like you and me out there that have the ideas and and the capability of of doing the the, the office, mm-hmm. whatever the office requires? And the answer is not only yes, but but emphatically yes, that that probably the best qualified people will never, ever have any success unless they join the R&D machine. And um, I was thinking about this when you invited me to the interview because I was wondering, well, why am I agreeing to this? Well, it's a big ego boost when somebody asks me about me, you know. <laughs> yeah. I think that's true. And that's something I recognized when I ran for office is whenever I was invited to talk to somebody, it, it was an ego boost. Oh, yeah. you know? But that's also how the R's and the D's kind of pull everybody into the fold. Mm-hmm. I, 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 re- I saw it when um, a couple of Republicans came to me, because I, I told you about my governor campaign. I also mm-hmm. ran two other campaigns, one for treasurer of the county and one for mayor of the town. I lived in Bloomington, Illinois. Oh, cool. And... I was really proud of the mayor campaign more than anything. Oh, really? we, we nailed the, the issues and so on. And some Republicans came up to me afterwards and they started patting me on the back yeah. and telling me what a great job I did. And the interesting thing is I recognized something. You know, I got that ego boost, yeah. right? But that ego boost, if I would have followed where it went, it had strings attached. They were kind of inviting you to come out, come out, hang out with us. You know, yes, join the Republican Party. Yeah, well, we, we want you to carry water for us. Yeah, you'll have you'll have basically un, unlimited resources mm-hmm. in comparison. Yeah, and and that's fine. But then I'm divorcing myself from the basically the principled stand that I was taking already. Yeah, and at that point, it's it's like be beware. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. I don't know if you want to get into it, but a, a friend of mine uh, argued against term limits to me one time. Oh, really? Yeah. What for the same like? reason. He says, yeah. if you're a freshman and you go into Washington, and uh, first thing they do is they start patting you on your back. Congratulations. We love to have you here. It's great. It's yeah. great. Now yeah. let me tell you what you have to do. Yep. And then it's, you know, one of the first things is now you have to go out and raise money to help us stay in power. Yeah. But the, his argument, the, my friend's argument against term limits is was, uh, what if there's all freshmen coming in? Yeah. Who's there? It's the lobbyists. They'll be patting yeah. you on the back and say, <laughs> oh, you did a great job. We'd love to have you here. Now let me help you. Exactly. <laughs> let me help you. But it'll, it'll always be there. That's very true. Yeah, it I, is. I do wish there, I do, I like the idea of term limits, though, just because you will get fresh and new ideas as you have, you know, new and different candidates coming in. Mm-hmm. And one of the hardest things in politics and shoot anything or anything in life, even when it comes to like selling technology, the incumbent is always incredibly difficult to displace. So that's why we see, you know, go to DC and there's a lot of people who have been there since gosh, darn it needs some of them almost seems like a you know century, but, and yep. it's just so hard to displace them because they got the position, they have the incumbent voter base, and they have those resources that we were talking about earlier where 
they can just plaster the town with their name and name recognition is a big part of politics is, you know, who do you remember? What are the one or two bullet points that really inspired you or really made you connect with that candidate that inspired you to give them your sign off and they're going to put their ballot over to you. So, you know, we have term limits right now. Oh yeah. It's called vote them out. <laughs> I thought you were going to say death. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the other one. Like, they get pretty old. Eventually they, uh, all everyone passes away. It's, it's very rare to see anyone in politics retire, which is another fascinating thing where maybe it's just because of the allure of power or the resources, but yeah, it's, it's really hard to get new ideas into DC. And I wish there were more avenues and that's part of the reasons I really want to interview you just to let, let people know that there are options. You can really just find something that really speaks to you. I, I have a lot of diverse different ideas. Some, you know, some left, some right. And that's why I always feel kind of disenfranchised by the traditional political outcome or the traditional political process sometimes. It's like, man, I wish there were a way to get those ideas out there. So people really, they realize there are options and, you know, with enough time, money, and energy, anyone can run for office. You can do it. It's just, you know, Mm -hmm. get those good ideas and connect with the folks so that they know it is out there. It's an option. Right. And I would like to see politicians do the right thing make it easier for people to get on the ballot. Agree. Regardless of your party or if you're in a party. Yeah. Right? And now if we want to go radical, mm-hmm. I would say do away with the primary system altogether because I, as a libertarian, don't like paying for Republicans and Democrats to do their internal politics. So that's, if you don't mind circling back to that, so is that, that's really interesting. So your party has to pay for, because I know putting on a convention or any event, that's, that's quite capital intensive. So your tax dollars are support, or what do you mean by um, you're paying for their conventions? Or wh- well, they don't have a convention. They they uh-huh. have a public primary. Mm-hmm. That means in order for them to choose that, the whole state of Texas has to put on an election. An election is not cheap to put on. Mm-hmm. Okay, and it it is also labor intensive. I mean, if you've gone to the polls, which I hope you have, oh, always yeah. and you see <laughs> that somebody checks you in. Somebody makes sure you get in line. Somebody gives you the ballot. Somebody takes the ballot. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of people doing this, okay? And there's a lot of money spent because you have to, you know, make sure that the laws are being followed. There's training for the poll workers. There's uh, making sure the facilities are available. It's Even if there's not money spent at everything, there's a lot of displacement of resources, et cetera. All this is borne by the taxpayer. So uh, as long as you're a Republican or Democrat, you say, well, that's okay with me. I don't mind. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but not all of us want to pay for the Republicans or the Democrats to do their internal politics. Yeah. So like you say, when the libertarians get together, we rent out the hotel mm-hmm. at our personal expense. We buy our rooms to stay there and, and buy our meals, et cetera. And uh, then we d- conduct the business, you know, we make sure our bylaws are in place and uh, look at our platform to make sure it shows what we believe in. And then we elect our nominees to go on the ballot. Yeah. And all that is internal politics. It's internal to our party. Well, the Republicans and Democrats should do the same. I agree. Yeah. Just be, be a lot, it would be more fair. It'd be more fair. Yeah. It'd be it'd be a lot less burden upon the taxpayer and on the the uh, election structure in the state. And 
a lot less chance for corruption. Not that uh, I'm accusing anybody of that, <laughs> but, uh, but you know. So why is it that we we pay for a political party to do their business? Well, it's because they pass the laws. Now, right. hey, pass fair laws. Agree. So, what do you like to do outside of politics or outside of the office? <laughs> uh, I, I like to golf, but I also like to fish. I've, I've, uh, I had a boat when I was running for governor, and it sat in the garage for two years and never saw the water. So, oh gosh! <laughs> yeah, so I've, uh, I've since resurrected it. It's, it's happy now. It's on the water from time to time, and uh, but I'm trying to upgrade it because I bought my boat in. Uh, 1999, mm-hmm. uh, Karen and I bought a, a nice uh, boat because she was tired of sitting in a little uh, little skiff and oh, yeah. us <laughs> rocking all the time. So we got a nice boat. But I'm trying to upgrade it. Um, I just put it to new <coughs> – excuse me. Uh, I got a new trolling motor and a new fish finder on it. Oh, neat. And, um, and I did the wiring myself. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, I mean, some of the wiring was already there, but yeah, I, I uh, took the panels off. I laid down on my back. I shoved a stuff through, you know, something with electrical tape and a wire attached to it through, and then crawled around and pulled it around, you know, because so, the batteries are in the back, the trolling motor's in the front. And uh, so I put a, a new fish finder. Uh, I'm using Garmin products, so they're, they're pretty. You know, oh, they're big in the GPS area, and oh yeah, they also have very nice fish finders. Oh yeah, and uh, I think I mentioned to you that it was just just a month ago I added a second fish finder. Yeah, because when I fish in the front of the boat, mm-hmm. I want to be able to see the fish there. But when I'm right. driving the boat, I need to be able to see how deep the water is, make sure I don't run aground, and It'll and it's also yeah. nice to kind of cruise slow and look to see if I see any rocks or bridges or something under yeah. the, that I can fish around. So, so I just added a, a new fish finder. Oh, nice. Yeah. What's your favorite thing to fish or fish to go after? My favorite is bass. Oh, really? Bass and then crappies. Uh, up north, we like to fish for walleyes a lot, but oh, I, I don't even days. know if there's any walleyes down here or not. Yeah. I used to go after uh, pike when I was growing up. You oh. go up to Great Lakes and, you know, yeah. those are the days. <laughs> uh, pike is good eating, too. Delicious, yeah. You just need, and all you need, you don't have to worry about the bait. You just get a nice spoon lure, lure, yeah. and go down there and cast away and have some fun. Oh yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. Uh, my wife and I went to uh, Canada one year, and we caught a ton of walleye and, and pike. But uh, now I'm in Texas, and there's lots of bass water down here. Oh yeah, there's a lot of options too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, well, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Lex. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Don't forget Topping Talks is also on YouTube, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, tell your friends, tell your family, tell your enemies, heck, tell anyone. Just y'all stay safe. Have a great day. Talks.